Welcome back to The Mix with Matt and Dan. Uh, Thanks for coming back, guys. So this is a very special episode. Again, we are in the fourth section, uh, fourth hour of talking with my father, uh, Rusty Bruchet. Uh, Dad, say hi. How you doing, Matt? Doing well, doing well. Um, So continuing from our conversation last uh, last session, uh, you had kind of gone through how you got all the way to where you were uh, with Shoko. Uh, you guys had missed kind of the boat with the innovations in some of the stage lighting. I think you guys were having to carry thousands of pounds of rigging above uh, these stars' heads in order to even get all of the lights up on the rigging. That's right, yep. And then you had um, assigned, you know, you had talent inside your uh, your company, and that talent right. uh, was not necessarily assigned to lighting because you guys right. were completely an audio shop. That's right. Uh, but you had a guy named Jim Bornhorst. That's right. And, and uh, he was a, an engineer that had been on the road actually as a sound engineer, but he had a degree in uh, electrical engineering from Texas A&M. So he was a you know well-educated and very capable engineer. And we had designed and built the Shoko Superboard together in 1973 and 1974, where he had designed a really innovative uh, circuit for an equalization called parametric equalization, where everything in the and the equalizer was variable, which was a big advance at that time. So from a reputation point of view, was he was he a pretty well known in the company for that innovation, or was it sure within just, the company was absolutely yeah. yeah. So he had kind of gotten a lot of political power and a lot of. No, I wouldn't say political power. He was he was just uh, considered sort of head of our engineering group, right. even as small as it was. We had about six or eight people. Yeah, so he was an early standout. That's right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. Yeah. And so when you guys were getting to this point, you had, you had tried a bunch of other people. You had just been going around trying to get this problem solved. As far as the color changer, yes. We, we, uh, we had decided that we needed to do something to try to make these lights that we were using on stage change color. And But when you think about that problem... It, I think it's important to understand, though, that you were not looking for a moving light. No, that idea hadn't come to be yet. Right. So you were just looking, like you had a thousand lights over these guys' heads. Yeah. They were each light was a single color. That's correct. And you were just trying to get what were you did in your head saying, okay, well, if I could change the colors, I could maybe take these down to a hundred lights. No, we just felt like we would get much more flexibility in the in the design of the show. And we were thinking like six colors. We were thinking if we could take uh, six pieces of gel and somehow change them in front of the light, uh, that that would be a huge step forward. Okay. Because um, just to refresh what I said about that, we were using what was called a par can for all of the concert lighting in that era in nineteen in nineteen eighty. Uh, the lights that were being used on stage was basically an eight-inch in diameter, what's called a sealed beam uh, PAR PAR bulb, which was a sort of like an old-fashioned car headlight. It was all made of all glass, had a glass lens, and then on, on the back was a glass reflector, and it was all bonded together into a unit, and inside was a tungsten filament. Yep. And you would buy various beam angles bulbs. If you wanted a narrow beam, 
you'd have to go buy a par, a par bulb that had a narrow pattern. If you wanted a really wide pattern, you'd have to go buy a par bulb with a wide pattern. And you'd put the bulb in the can, and the can was just a steel cylinder made of sheet metal, 8 inches in diameter and about 14 inches long, maybe 12 inches long. The par bulb was at the back end of the of the cylinder, yeah. and at the front end was a little gel frame. You took a piece of gel that was 8 inches by 8 inches square or 10 inches square, and you just slid it into the front of the park in and so that was all your these light. In, all these innovations that were happening were like almost kind of analog in a way, right? Like you're right. going and you're like, oh, well, maybe a different shape. Okay, well, we can make this little doodad over here. And then all of a sudden, you guys are carrying it to the stage. You look up and there's no space. That's right. Right? So you had just covered every bit of real estate above the, per, above the person. Right. And there was just no more room. No, and and it was it was very limiting because in order to have different colors in the lighting rig, you had to mount par cans up in the rig that were gelled that color. Yeah. And so if you wanted red or if you wanted blue, you'd have to have you'd have to take thirty or forty of your lights and make them red gel and then turn them all on at once to get a yeah. nice red and color. I don't know if I'm smart enough to ask this question, but I'm going to try. Right. So when I see product development and I see a lot of things in the market, and there's always this kind of like rate and like kind of uh, patterns of innovation, right? Yep. And so you have, um, and you see it a lot in technology now where all of a sudden you completely shift the model, right? Like yeah. you, you shift the model from, you guys are running down this kind of stream or this level, and that level has a certain, you know, certain innovation sections to it. Like, yeah, right. you can adjust the front of the lens, you can adjust the back of the lens yeah. on these par cans, but in order to take it to the next level, now it becomes a geometric growth, right? Yeah. Because you cracked that level of innovation, when it got to the next level above it, it was an order of magnitude better. It was. Yeah, but I mean, do you, when you've done a lot of product development, have you seen a pattern like that happen where like this one level just kind of goes flat and wide as fast as possible? And then all of a sudden, kind of the next level creates not because it's not level two growth, right. it ends up being a geometric growth. Yeah, it takes a really uh, basic innovation to do that. And it takes sort of a, a paradigm shifting innovation. And when we were dealing with these Parkan lighting rigs uh, in the 70s, uh, all of the beams that came out of the lights were what's called soft-edged. Yeah. They were not hard-edged. Right. There was a hard-edged fixture that was used in theater called a Leco, and it was an ellipsoidal uh, spotlight with a, a, a focusing lens, and you could actually get a hard-edge crisp beam. Okay. Like, like you would see like with a big follow spot, the way that beam looks when it comes out of the sky behind you in a big arena. It's got a sharp edge to it. Right. Well, on the stage, though, what we were using with park hands were not sharp edge. They were soft edge. So everything had a soft look to it. And because you could not change color and because you had to change bulbs out to get different beam angles and stuff, the, the rigs were just sort of, they all looked pretty much the same, and they really weren't all that exciting. If you look right. at the lighting in the shows in the 70s, 
they were okay. They were kind of doing the job, lighting the stage up and making sure you could see the performer, but there wasn't much of a light show element to it. Yep. There was one other uh, par bulb type of device we used called an aircraft landing light, and it was a par bulb, but it, it, it was designed with an extremely narrow beam right. that uh, projected kind of a, a shaft of light. Yeah, and we but, did use those and, and kind of gave some geometric effects of patterns, you know, fans and stuff. So, I mean, you could say that the fuse that exploded this industry, right, was the, the need for color. Like, why was it the request and the pursuit of color changing rather than the idea of motorized lighting? We didn't... Because uh, motorized didn't... lighting was totally possible at that point. It was an innovation that just needed to be folded. There didn't need yeah. to be innovation... On top of it. Well, there there had been uh, motorized stage lighting done as far back as 1920, um, which I found out later. I didn't know it at the time. But at the time that we were working on the color changer, we had not thought of moving lights. We, that, that, that idea hadn't it did not exist yet. Right. What we were clear, trying to do was we were trying to make a parkan change colors so that we could get more flexibility out of the rigs um, and because we had, we were limited, we could, we'd already put so many lights above the stage. We, we needed something to give us more flexibility that, that, uh, didn't require more floor space. Right. So we thought, okay, if we can make a gel, ch gel changer and we called it a gel changer project, that was what we were working on. Yeah. And we kept trying to figure out, but we were trying to move an, a, a big metal frame with a piece of gel in it. And we were trying to move it quickly because we also wanted really fast color change. Right. Because in rock music, you know, you're, you'd like to be able to change color on the beat. And so you want something that's quick, snappy, right. like a quarter of a second change. So all the things that we tried um, just didn't work well because we were trying to move too large an object. The, the gel frame was too heavy and too big. And it just... Uh, it just wasn't working out for us. And we've been working on it two or three years. So did you actually rig up like some like overly crazy lawnmower type stuff where you were like... Yeah, we, like, we actually like, built prototypes. We yeah, built, they were like just crazy engines on a gel and you'd hit the button and it'd rip the gel in half or anything. No, it, 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 we, it, it would work. It would just be super noisy. You know, we had one that was a, a semaphore system, like a semaphore flag that, you know, moved 90 degrees from vertical to in front of the light, and we had six of these mechanisms all tied together, so you ended up with a very large, heavy mechanism that you needed to mount on the end of the gel can, uh, par can. Right. And then when you made them change fast, they were really noisy. So and even the, when you were trying to innovate the light, you actually didn't even think of redoing the entire light. You were started no. by just adding another bolt-on accessory. That's correct. Right. That's what, that's what, that was the original idea. So... I asked Jim Bornhorst to take a look at it, and uh, Jim was a, an audio engineer. He really wasn't a lighting guy. He wasn't uh, from that part of the business. So he he kind of, he already knew intuitively that trying to make the gel changer as we had originally conceived it wasn't really ever going to work because it just wasn't, um, we, we just couldn't do what we wanted to do. It was just basic physics, you know. Um, 
So he started looking around, and he had become aware of a, another light source. Uh, and it, it had been used in a follow spot, a small onstage follow spot. And it was called a Mark 350 arc lamp. And what it was, it was made by General Electric. And it was a 350-watt arc. And it was a small arc burner that was permanently mounted in a glass elliptical reflector. And an elliptical reflector uh, is different from a PAR reflector. A PAR reflector is a, what's called a parabolic reflector, and that focuses the light in a parallel or sort of a common beam, a large beam. An ellipsoidal reflector focuses the light from the burner into a point out in front of the reflector. So it kind of focuses in and it creates a, a real hot spot. Yep. And you typically would then put that, would be the focal point of your optical system. You'd put lenses in front of that, and you'd project that hot spot. That's how the Leco uh, fixture worked. It was used in theater, but it was used with tungsten sources, so it was a much larger fixture. But anyway, the, the thing about this, this arc lamp, this Mark 350 was, is it had been invented by General Electric for use in... 16 millimeter film projectors and it focused all that light down into a small area and that was the illumination of the of the film as it went through the the projector so you'd illuminate that small area where the 16 millimeter film was and then you put lenses in front of that and then you'd project the image of the film up on the screen right so you'd have a really powerful it was powerful but because it was an arc lamp it wasn't demo and the, the other big advantage, uh, not a big advantage, but one of the features of a PAR light being tungsten was it was fully dimmable. So you had, you know, dimming control over the lights from zero to From 100%. the source. Yeah, from the source. Yeah. So the arc lamp, because it was designed for a, a projector and also because of the nature of an arc, an arc in itself is not dimmable. You know, it's either on or off. I don't know that, but I'm sure that that's true. Yeah, because so, an arc they, is basically an anode and a cathode, two, two poles, and you put voltage across it, and then the current jumps between them and creates an arc, kind of like a lightning bolt. And, and that arc, is it the, the brightness of that arc, is that controlled by the amount of voltage or by the amount or the type of metal that creates those two connections? It's, the, it's, it, it's created by the... Uh, well... It, it's it's efficiency of the um, of the materials inside the the arc itself. Yeah. Uh, because when you put different materials in there, uh, it causes the arc to emit light at different frequencies. Okay. So, um, one of the common arc lamps was called a xenon arc lamp that used xenon gas. Right. And that was. Um, a very good arc lamp. It was used in uh, like searchlights and things like that. So I imagine because of the way that it's built and the, the way that that works is that you get consistent. So it's consistently the same color all the time. With xenon particularly you did. Yeah, because it was it, within it, a range. It, it, it emitted all the frequencies in, in the light spectrum. Uh, and it was very similar in that way to tungsten. Tungsten and, was also when, that way. And when the arc lamp came out that you guys were looking at, was it an order? That was an order of magnitude 
more watts at the time? Like it was brighter, right? Well, the thing about it was it was a 350-watt arc lamp, but because it was three times more efficient than tungsten, yeah, it was the same brightness as a 1,000-watt PAR lamp. And, and so when you had uh, PAR lamps on, PAR cans on the stage, you were, were you using 1,000-watt PAR cans or were you using 350-watt PAR cans? No, we were using 1,000-watt PAR cans. Okay, so you were getting immediately the, like the, the requirements of having to go and set up electricity in the field just got caught, cut by a third if you could switch it to, a, to an arc. That's correct. Okay. And, um, but the, the, the arc lamp had some disadvantages. Number one, it required a power supply to run it, and the power supply had a 30,000-volt start pulse that would have to go, to, you have to blast the lamp with this big pulse to get the arc to start. And then the power supply had to regulate the current going through the arc lamp to get it to operate correctly. And so would, would that be, was that like a harsh thing? Was it really yes. loud? And did yeah. that cause the machine to break often because it was well, so violent? It, 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 it was just, yeah, it was just, uh, it, it, the power supply was uh, about, as I recall, it was like eight or ten inches square and two or three inches thick. Okay. So it was a fairly large piece of, a, of electronic equipment with lots of components on it. And the, that arc, when you, hit, when you hit it with that 30,000 volts, yeah, that radiated a lot of noise, you know, radio emissions type so noise. So the box itself yeah. was starting to hum? Well, it just put it out in the air. It's like a lightning bolt, you know, and it... When you hear crackling over a radio when there's lightning, right? It's that real big voltage. So you turn on a thousand of those, and you got a little yeah, an event. And that power supply costs five hundred bucks, mm -hmm. and the bulb cost fifty dollars, and it lasted fifty hours. Okay. So it was going to cost a dollar an hour to run the bulb, and the and it wasn't dimmable, so it was going to be on all the time. So it wasn't. Um, it had some advantages over the par bulb, but it also had a lot of disadvantages as well. So but everything it gave you in electrical efficiency, it took in just having to keep it alive and, and operational and, and business And, and the physical size of it and everything. Right. So um, Jim still was fascinated by it because it, it was a big innovation from what we'd ever seen before. And he started experimenting with various ways to make color with that bulb. And whenever he would put gels in front of that bulb, they would immediately vaporize because <laughs> a gel is an absorption, what's called an absorption filter. And what that means is, is that when a, you know, light is, is made up of all the frequencies in the visible spectrum, you know, reds and blues and greens and that sort of thing. And so if you uh, want to get a particular color, if you put an absorption filter in front of it, like a red absorption filter, like a gel, it absorbs all the frequencies except red. And that, is, that goes into the gel in the form of heat. So a gel only lasted a certain period of time, and the dark colored gels failed much quicker than the lighter colored gels because they're absorbing a lot more light. Right. So uh, it became immediately apparent that gel was not going to work with this arc lamp. This wasn't going wasn't to work. So Jim had been familiar with um, a different type of filter, color filter, called a dichroic filter. 
And what a dichroic filter is, is it's a piece of glass that has coatings of various materials coated on the surface of the glass in a vacuum chamber called vacuum deposition. Okay. And by varying the various layers of materials on the glass, you can design filters to be at certain wavelengths and different colors and so forth. And he had seen these used in a color enlarger because he was a photographer and he liked the photography equipment and uh, color enlargers had dichroic filters to mix colors uh, to change the, uh, the way the film processing would work to get it to, to look right. Yeah. So um, he picked up the Edmund Scientific Catalog, which was a big, thick kind of a home, uh, you know, hobby catalog. And they had dichro filters in there, two inches by two inches in diameter or square in, I don't know, six or eight or ten colors. So he ordered them. And they came in, and he, and he picked one up, and he set it in front of this Mark 350 lamp, and um, it worked beautifully because a dichroic filter is called an interference filter, and it reflects all the frequencies that it's not passing. So instead of absorbing them, it reflects them off the back of the filter so they don't, it doesn't heat up. And so it can, it can take a huge amount of power and Almost it. as if it was designed for this. Yeah. Right? Because you have yeah. this massive heat source now because of the art lamp. Yeah. Right? I mean, it was already just producing yeah. large amounts of heat, even at about 350 watts, right? Yeah. And then it's passing all the heat through that filter as well? Well, it, actually, the, um, the other big thing about the arc lamp was it had what's called a a hot mirror coating on the reflector that allowed the infrared energy to pass out the back of the reflector, which is where the main heat was. So it was actually running quite cool, but it was still so much energy that it was still vaporized gel. So when we put the dichroic filters in there, they could handle the, the heat load of, uh, and the power load of the, of the, of the uh, Mark 350 arc lamp, and it produced a very nice color, but he also noticed that when he tilted the dichroic filters in the light beam, the color changed because a feature of a dichroic filter is that it's designed to be a specific color at a 90-degree angle of incidence where the beam comes at it at 90 degrees. And if you change the angle of incidence, the color that it's passing shifts so it becomes different colors. And so you if, you make, if you make that 90-degree color of incidence, right? That yeah. You just said angle, you of made, yeah, angle of incidence. If you made that red, then at 91 degrees, every single one of those would be the same color. So there's consistent, do you understand my question? Like consistency, yeah. you're able to consistently manufacture something by one kind of setting on that diacrope filter? Not really. I, I think it was really more at that point of just realizing that you could actually have a color shift or a color change. And we've been looking for a way to make lights change color. So here we had this dichroic filter that if you held it in front of this arc lamp and started to twist it or tilt it, we could get on the wall, we could get different colors to show up. And um, they were, you know, it was a gradual shift, but it was still, by the time you, you, you tilted all the way to 45 degrees, you could get some pretty significant color shifts in the color that was coming 
through the through the system. Right. So um, he sort of realized that it was sort of analogous to the parametric equalizer that he had designed for the audio board. That what he was doing was he was changing. Uh, by by tilting the dichroic filter, he was doing the same thing to light frequencies that he was doing to audio frequencies in the board. He was varying, he was creating a variable filter. Instead of having specific steps, it was continuously variable. So this was uh, this was a big a big breakthrough moment for us because. We had never been able to come up with any way to make light, a light change color. And here we, he had the basic concept there of a, of a system. So we had it all hodgepodge together. Yeah, so he built, he built a, uh, a prototype, which we later named VL0. But okay. it was basically a bench prototype. And he mounted, uh, he took four different filters of different color, color ranges and he mounted them on uh, airplane servo motors. We, we bought a lot of parts at that time from Crown Hobby Shop over in Preston Center. And we mounted these servo motors and we put the filters on the servo motor and so we could t make them move from either 90 degree angle of incidence to the beam or we could turn them uh, 100, you know, 180 degrees and they would be totally parallel with the beam and would impart no color whatsoever. Right. Actually, that's nine degrees. It was either nine degree angle of incidence or zero, so it was ninety degree uh, tilt or movement. So he put four of those in a row, and he put some lenses together to make the optical system work, and he was able to build a prototype system on the bench that would change to almost any color gradually. Mm-hmm. Just or, by turning little dials. Yeah, because we, we hooked them all up to individual knobs, and you could go turn the knobs, and right. you could see it do it. And so you could go either, you know, very slowly or you could go very quickly. Yeah, as, so as, I got know. a bunch of questions about that. Let's take a minute and just think about that, and then uh, listen to some ukulele music from Juliet, my daughter, your granddaughter. Okay. And then when we come back, I want to talk about how do you... Uh, you know, is there the eureka moment? He's running through the company saying, I found it, or, you know, I've got it, or is it a little bit less exciting than that? Uh, we'll be back. sitting here with Rusty Bruchet talking about the invention of uh, very light, the automated color changing light. Uh, how this, what year was this that we were in? 1980. So 1980, we are... We're in the fall of 1980, in September or so. Yeah, so Jim Bornhorst is out uh, putzing around trying to figure out how, and he comes up with an innovation. Comes and, up with this great idea of combining uh, dichroic filters with a General Electric Mark 350 arc lamp. 
Okay, so he builds um, it on the table. He's got the table with yeah. the servo motors and everything's going. Yeah, he's got that going, and and it was it was really an exciting thing to be able to see a color change happen on the wall. You know, and this was projected. the first time you guys had ever even seen that. That's right? correct. Nobody, We'd, no, but nowhere else in the world, nobody had seen no. this thing. But why not the person who invented that diacrylic filter? Because diacrylic filters were used for all kinds of other applications, and um, stage lighting just wasn't high on the list. I mean, it was things. something they may have noticed, but they had never really thought of just... Well, they, they knew it was a color filter. I mean, that's what it's for, but applying it to stage lighting was uh, something that we, we did, but the average physicist or whoever was going to use it for a laser or for whatever, or even a color enlarger for a for uh, camera development or film development is they just weren't thinking of it in terms of lighting. I see. I see. So um, we were we were excited about it and the people, you know, the company was fairly small at that point and I had shut down the lighting department, which I talked about. So we weren't in lighting anymore. And so a lot of the, of the senior lighting people were still around um, and so uh, a few of those looked at it and were, you know, we all, we all really were excited to see something change color. I mean, it was really, that was thrilling. But it, there was a lot of challenges because of the cost and the, the size of this power supply that ran the bulb and the fact that, you know, a Parkan light fixture cost $20, including the bulb. And here we were looking at, $500 for the power supply and a bulb that cost $50 and only lasted 50 hours and was not dimmable. And so, you know, we were 20 times off the, like the, current the, cost, market. the current market cost structure, you know. So it, 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 was, it was pretty fabulous, the idea of a color-changing light, but there was also some head-scratching of, okay, exactly how are we going to make this work on a business level, you know. Right. So anyway, we went to... Uh, Hold on. Was there a lot of business moxie in the company, or was this something that was sourced? Is this your contribution? No, that was more my contribution. Like everybody else was like, this is cool, but it wasn't... Was there a sense of it just being magical, or was there a sense of like, that'd be great, but there's... I mean, there's no market in the world for this object, right? Like, you're 20 times more expensive. Right. You have a need for it, but not everybody else in the world has a need for it or even knows about it. Right. Um, so they right. may want it, but like it's like wanting a spaceship. Yeah, I'd like like a spaceship, but <laughs> I'm not going to go spend a trillion dollars to go build one. Well, and also the the, the market, the, the the entertainment market at the time didn't know that they needed color changing. You know, it, we had we had seen it and we were looking for it, but it wasn't a common theme in the lighting industry. At what do that you time. think the lighting industry was looking for? I don't think they were really looking for anything. I, I think they were just kind of going along and using whatever product would come along, but it wasn't a whole lot of driving force in the lighting industry for for things. I mean, it's an industry that more like likes to see something and apply it than trying to visualize it and try to create it. Interesting. So, yeah. So we um, we were having lunch one day. At a barbecue stand called Solly's Barbecue in Dallas, and uh, it was in Preston Center. It was a place that we used to go to a lot. And my partner Jack Maxson 
and uh, Jim Bornhorst and a lighting, one of the guys from the lighting group named Tom Littrell, one of our senior guys at the time, was there. And we were eating lunch, and we were talking about this color-changing light that Jim had created, and we were, we were excited about it. And we were talking about what we were going to do to build a prototype, a real working prototype. And um, in the middle of the lunch, just out of the blue, um, as, as we were talking about the prototype, we were talking about the fact we'd have, we need a motor for the first color filter, and then we need another motor for the second color filter, and a third motor, and so forth. And Maxon said, well, you know, two more motors and we can make it move. Hmm. And, you know, it was one of those cartoon moments, you know, where you see a bunch of people sitting around a table and the big light bulb that's drawn and this big cloud over the table, you know, with this eureka moment. It was a classic eureka, oh my God, moment. Like, why didn't we ever think of that before? Right. We had never thought about moving the light. and We had only been thinking about color change. So we said, yeah, absolutely. We got to build this prototype and we got to make it pan and tilt. And then literal and some of the other lighting people said, well, yeah. And then you need to have a mechanical dimmer in there because it's an arc lamp. We got to dim it. So we need a dimmer and we need it to project gobos, which are patterns. A gobo is a theatrical term for a, at the time, it was a metal stencil that you would put into a Lico in the theater world mm -hmm. and project images of leaves on a tree or grass or starry night, starry or, night or something yeah. like that. So basically, holes in a sheet of paper. It was basically and you shine holes lights in, through yeah, it. Yeah, it, it was kind of like uh, you know the, the old bigger. puppet shows and the yeah, you know yeah. shadows, making things with your hands, you know stuff. Yeah. Except you could. Cut stencils and holes, kind of like cookie cutters, you know. Yeah, so Christmas I mean, trees. And what stuff. I mean, just to help people visualize, typically a gobo looks like a piece. It looks like a pie that's been cut up. Yeah. And then you just turn it one notch, and it goes to the other part of the gobo, and then you have twelve or fifteen different. Well, at the time, it, it was just a, a stencil that went into a leco on theater, so it was actually a piece of metal about three inches by three inches. Okay. And there was a place in the in the Lico fixture that you would put this gobo in. It was With a your specific hands. spot. Yeah. yeah. And it was permanently there. So if as long as you wanted that gobo, then you just turn that Lico on and it would project that image. It was an image projector pretty much. So here we were talking about an automated fixture all of a sudden where we could make gobos maybe on a wheel or something that would change. We might be able to have five or six of them or so. Yeah. And we would also have... Uh, this color changing and movement. So uh, Jim and uh, his group, there were, there were three other primary designers in, with him that worked on this project. One was named Tom Walsh. He was a digital analog engineer who designed the actual circuit, the, kind of the Steve Wozniak of the group. Um, and then there was Brooks Taylor, who was a software engineer, a programmer. And there was a guy named John Covington who was an analog engineer and really good with power supplies and power and mm -hmm. analog, analog electronic systems. And so the four of them 
set out to build this prototype. We wanted to build a prototype where the the light fixture itself would pan and tilt or move, you know, and we wanted to be able to change the color and we wanted to be able to dim it. We didn't have gobos in this first prototype. Right. And we wanted to control it from a little controller and we wanted to be able to do various settings and then store that group of settings as a cue. Right. And so Tom Walsh built a 16... Uh, a, a single channel 16 memory controller and he designed a serial data link that goes between the controller and the light fixture so that all the all the controls were in action in digital form yeah. in a asynchronous serial link and uh, we had it to where we could dial up the pan and tilt and color and select what we wanted and then store that as a queue and come back and push that button 1 to 16 and it would go to wherever we had it set. Yeah. And uh, they were able to build the first prototype in 12 weeks. It was amazing how fast. So all it of came those guys, together. everybody did a fairly complicated part of this yeah. technical product, but you were able to like draw it out and specify it. Did you go through the process of building a plan or was it like back of the napkin type stuff here? It was back of the napkin. It was actually the whole specification was created at the lunch. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, said, we got to make it pan and tilt, and we got to make it change and color. I mean, what about the size, like the look of the the? We we didn't worry about that. We just it, it was sort of it looked like a bread bread box. You it didn't was, really care what it looked like. You were just going to put a casing. We on needed it. a proof of concept. Yeah. We needed something that would show that the thing could actually move, change color, and be recallable. Right. On and the wall. What gave you confidence to know that you would iterate and make that better? Was it? all of this experience that you had at Shoko going through and like building better cases and building, yeah. you know, better inputs on the, the, the stereo boxes and things like that. I think, um, I don't think we really thought about that too much. I think we were just so excited about the whole idea of this automated light that uh, we felt that, you know, if we could build, the prototype and make it work, then we could certainly, you know, take it from that point and make something that was. So I mean, there's a you know there's a fairly solid not debate but a, you know, well I, I'd say there's a debate but there's a, a massive amount of literature now that's come out around the idea of ideation right and the problem with all engineers and the problem with pretty much everybody who builds products is like building stuff is way more exciting than the business side right yeah. and so you know, there's just this massive desire to just go build it and just go get it done. And yeah. nobody really thinks about it. But even in this, something that did take off, there was no real logic behind or, or there's no validation of the market. You didn't go out and talk to people and say, hey, I think I can build this color-changing light. No. You were like, we don't care. We're just going to go build it. And if yeah. it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Yeah. And do you think you could have done it a different way? Do you think you would have gotten that innovation if you'd gone and talked to people? Or do you think that the people were kind of, not idiots, just not aware of your vision? Yeah, I think, um, I don't think anybody was really thinking about it at the time. I think we were thinking about it, but I just don't think very, you know, it just wasn't something that a lot of people were working on yeah, or thought about. And, um, you know, we were we were a fairly small company and pretty agile, and we were able to just, it wasn't that expensive to build a prototype. It was basically model airplane parts and stuff. And um, 
you know, basic electronic circuits and stuff. You know, uh, Brooks wrote all the software on, uh, you know, we had to load the software into the system with the old Telex machines where we would, do, do the, you know, punch the paper tape. Mm-hmm. And we would, he would do all the uh, programming, and then w- in order to load the software in there, we'd have to do this big, long paper punch tape with holes in it, and then you'd run that through a, a system that would feed the software into the device, you know? Right. So, I mean, and we, we used that tele- Telex machine and all that for a long time for for the software. It took us a while before we got, got beyond that, but... Um, Anyway, Brooks wrote the software for this little controller. Uh, Tom Walsh built the hardware. And Brooks wrote the software for it, and and uh, you know, t- John Covington and Jim Bornhorst des- did the other design of the head. And and basically, the unit produced a soft edge beam, very similar to a par-looking beam. And when we first saw it, we really were excited about it. But our vision was is that the pan and tilt, the moving part of it, was to make it more uh, practical on stage. It would take up, we could even get by with fewer lights because we could reposition the lights. So our vision of this first VL0 prototype was a repositionable, color-changing stage light. Right. The idea of kinetic effects and all that did not exist at this time. We were still thinking of it as a parkan kind of product with a whole lot different technology. You know, it wasn't... Um, so you knew it was better oh, because yeah, it, it solved it was, this problem. It was exciting because it changed color. It was really... Yeah, well, but it, I mean, even at that lunch, you were able to fold in seven or eight other extraneous yeah. technology. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like They yeah. were just technologies that were laying around that had been bolted on. Yeah. And now all of a sudden it was in line with this tech, right? Yeah. You had a, a, a light bulb that was 3X better. You had gobos that would potentially be automated with motors, right? Yeah. Like you could, e- you could imagine all of these things. This is actually an interesting part of, uh, I don't know, we could talk about it now or talk about it at some other point in the, in the podcast. But um, once you get to this point, the next innovations are quite obvious, Right. And I don't know if IP law really deals with that. Right. Like when people lay down the operating system, like I think the Amazon Go technology, we've talked about that, is the next operating system that we're kind of going to deal with. Once you get to that level, the next 30 items that come out of that are very, very obvious. And then clearly Amazon will have a leg and a leg up in patenting those. Right. So, um, I don't think at this part of the story we're quite at that point yet, but we yeah. will be fairly soon because um, in the, while this was coming together, I had uh, had lunch. I had been in London on business, and I had lunch with a guy named Tony Smith who was the manager of Genesis, you know, Phil Collins and Mike Rutherford yeah. and Tony Banks. And th- they had been a longtime client of ours, and we'd always done large lighting and sound productions for them. And they had a tour coming up uh, in early ni- or in nineteen in September of nineteen eighty one. They were going to do a tour called the Abacab Tour to promote their album. Okay. And uh, I met with him in the fall of uh, nineteen eighty, around the time that we came up with this. After the Sollies lunch, probably late September, early October, I met with Tony. I said, "Hey, Tony, I, I, we've got this product idea." 
and we're working on a prototype, and I really think it's perfect for Genesis. I want you to see it. And he, I, I described it, and he really was interested in it and said, well, we're going to be rehearsing in, in, uh, in London at this studio we have and in Surrey, and when you get the prototype ready, you come over and demonstrate it. So in December, on December 15th, Jim Bornhorst and I boarded a flight, and we flew to London with the prototype, the VL0, in a suitcase. And we, um, we drove out to this farm, which was out in the countryside, that Genesis owned, and they'd built a recording studio inside the farmhouse. Okay. And they were, they were recording Abacab at the time. And outside the farmhouse was this old barn that was about 500 years old. And uh, when we got there, it was fairly cold. It was the middle of December. So Tony said, well, why don't you go set the light up out in the barn, and when you get it working, we'll come out there and look at it. So Jim took the, the light out there, and there's another guy with us named Alan Owen who was their lighting engineer from our, our lighting department that we had yeah. that had been with him for years. And so it was Alan Owen and Jim and myself. And so we, uh, we went out into this barn. and um, I mean, Were they all recording? They were all actively recording? All the band people were there? Oh, yeah. And like everybody oh, yeah. was doing the thing? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And so the, uh, we didn't have any way to really mount the light. It was just a plate. The, basically the box, the base of the light was mounted on top of a flat plate. And so we'd, we uh, thought we would just screw this plate to the beam in the barn. There, these old beams were in there. And so we got up in there and tried to, to, to drill a little hole in those beams. And the beams were like 500-year-old English oak. And they right. were like... <laughs> steel you couldn't we could there was no way we were screw a screw in those beams i still remember that it's so funny so we ended up just lashing this this light to this beam with rope or something i forget how exactly what was really just we, we did whatever we had to do to hold it up there yeah and we uh, turned the power on powered the, the thing up and uh hit some buttons and it wouldn't work wouldn't do anything. <laughs> okay, so you got and, the you got the rock band and its manager yeah. in the other. And it wasn't the other room. wouldn't work. And it turned out it was uh, it had been in the suitcase in the cold, and it was really it was really cold, and it just was. I think it was just kind of gummed up, so we had to let it warm up, mm-hmm. and we had the uh, the we were able to light the bulb, and that created heat, so we let it sit there and kind of warm up, and shortly it started to work properly. And so we were able to take the, this light and we could point it. There was four walls, obviously, in this room. It was a fairly small barn. And, uh, you know, you could point it to one of the walls and turn the blue light on and store that as a cue. And then you could point it to one of the other walls and turn it red and store yeah. that as a cue and okay. so forth. We stored up, I don't know, eight cues or something. And... And I said, okay, are we ready? And I said, said, yes. I went and got Tony and the group, and they all came out and stood in this barn. And uh, we just started punching these buttons, and this light started moving around and changing color, you know. And they absolutely loved it, you know. Awesome. Mike Rutherford said, by Job, I didn't know it was going to move. (laughs) Right. uh, It was just, you know, it took about 20 minutes, you know, and they said, we're, we're in. Yeah. So um, 
Tony Smith and I went back into the house, and we they had a big fireplace, you know. And we sat down in front of this fireplace, and uh, he asked me, he said, well, what what is it going to take? I said, well, I need I need the money to build a system, because we were talking about building 50 lights and a computer controller to run them. Right. And this was in December, and the tour started in September of 1981, so we had 10 months. Were you uh, organized from, enough to know how much that was going to cost? Uh, I had a good idea what it was going to cost. I told him that I needed about a half a million dollars. Yeah. And um, to build these 50 lights in this controller. And he said, well, I'll do it, but I, I want to own a percentage of the deal. I want to be a partner in the deal. So we structured the deal as a part equity investment and part tour advance for rental of the system. Okay. And um, and so, I, you know, we made the deal very quickly, and uh, I told him I needed to have him send the, the money, and then I, we would work on the legal agreements and get them done, but I needed to get going. Yeah. And so he, we had had a, a long enough relationship where he, he just wired me a big chunk of money, and uh, in the meantime, I got lawyers, and we just put together the, a partnership agreement. Right called Very Light Limited, because it was a limited partnership. And we just started started working on it. But the, the funniest part, or the best part, or the scariest part, I guess, was, uh, you know, I was kind of freaked out thinking, here I am taking this money and we yeah. have this prototype, but I didn't have any idea. I mean, I knew we could do it, but I wasn't, you know, I was, it was kind of a, a large challenge, I would say. And uh, we got it back on the airplane, and... Uh, we're flying back to London. We're over the Atlantic Ocean, and I'm sitting there with Bornhorst in the plane. And he says, well, you know, you know that this design we have right now, this isn't going to work. We're going to need a little different design <laughs> because I don't think the one that we're using with these four filters in a row is going to be the right one. And I looked at him. I said, what? <laughs> and he said, yep. He said, that, that's just not going to work. And uh, I said, well, what do, you, what do you have in mind, you know? He said, well, I think we ought to use wheels, color wheels that have individual filters in the wheel. I mean, I need to put those color wheels at the gate where the ellipsoidal reflector focuses down, and we put these color filters in there, and by combining them, we can get a family of, of colors, you know, maybe 60 colors, but it won't be cross-fadable or variable, but it will be instant change and a large range of colors, and it'd be much more efficient. Yeah, so he casually invented something yeah. amazing. Yeah. Right? Like, I mean, that's a pretty profound yeah. efficiency. Yeah, and so it also would have the feature of a hard-edge beam because it would be projected through a projection lens, and so it would be more like a theatrical leco. And we could also put the gobos at that same gate where all the color changers are. And so that was the design that we pursued. And uh, we immediately started working on that. And I had worked with some uh, physicists at Texas Instruments that I knew, and I called them to help consult with us. And they helped us uh, with the uh, design of the, of the, or the specification of the color filter for this color changing system that we wanted to do. And, um, we were able to build 
Jim and Brooks Taylor and Tom Walsh and John Covington were able to build 50 of these lights and a controller in six months. And Brooks wrote all the software for the controller. Mm -hmm. It was 100, 100 presets, you know, 100 channels. We could store 256 cues. We could operate 32 lights. It was all, we were using a RCA 1802 microprocessor. Used five of them in their system. And uh, Tom Walsh designed the whole computer using uh, wire wrap boards where you have these boards with pins and you can wire pieces of wire between the pins and create your circuit boards. Right. And you used to use a gun, sort of like a, a hand, hand crimp thing, and you'd run that down in the pin and it would wrap the wire real tight around the pin. And so Walsh sat there at a table, I'll never forget it, and he had all of the spec sheets for the microprocessors and all this stuff laid out in front of him, and he sort of just wired this thing up, you know, from the spec sheets. I and mean, he didn't have a real formal, uh, big, long, worked-out drawing made it, or anything. He just made it work. He just made it work. Yeah. And um, he also did the digital asynchronous serial link with a coded address. For each light, and so we uh, we built 50 lights, and this controller, and we could run, uh, you know, more than one light on one channel if we needed to. Each light had a thumb wheel address on it, so you yeah. could set whatever channel it wanted to be. And each light would be we could change gobos. The gobo wheel was fixed; it was uh, six or eight positions, but they were permanent. You couldn't change them out. And we chose various patterns, you know. Yeah, the what? Yeah. Path dub drain stuff. But nobody and really cared because they'd never seen it. Never any seen of this, it before. Right? So they didn't and know that. The thing would produce 60 colors. And the dichroic colors were extremely efficient and rich. And we yeah. could go down and produce tremendously deep colors, like a, almost a UV color. Yeah. I, deep blues and reds. I mean, it was. It is something phenomenal. I remember about the early pictures. From the that I've seen is that the yeah. color was just really, really beautiful, right? I mean, they were, and know. the combination of the dichroic filters with the arc lamp, the Mark 350, which was a metal halide technology, which was a real uh, breakthrough in arc lamp technology from GE. And so we uh, we built these lights up and we got them all put together, and um, we were we had them hung from trusses fairly low on the floor as we were trying to get them all working and checking them all out and everything. And I remember the we were in the warehouse and we had all of the lights on and the lights produced a very sharp edge white beam when there wasn't any color in there. Yeah. And so you had all these lights that were hanging from this truss that we were basically using just to hold them up while we could work on them. And all these beams and everything, and Tom Literal, who was going to be the board operator and programmer, because you had to program all these lights and the various looks and everything, just went over and just turned the pan tilt, the pan knob or the tilt knob on the console, and all of these lights in unison with these white hard edge beams all suddenly moved in the warehouse. Yeah, and we were all. It was another one of those barbecue lunch moments where it's like, "Oh my God, did you see that?" 
Right. And it we just, had never anticipated the impact or the look of those beams all moving in unison or together. Because it kind of like uh, lifted you emotionally, right? Oh, like it, it was had just, just absolutely a, stunning. Which and really connected with the audience of people yeah. trying to make an emotional moment on stage. Yeah. And, and it all. actually was the defining feature of the very light system, ironically enough. The color change obviously was revolutionary and enabling, enabled us to build a light small enough to even think about pan and tilting it. But the thing that really made very light big in the market, I think, was the movement. Right. And the coordinated choreographed capability of, of being able to make all those lights do things together under the control of a computer at the punch of a button, you know? Right. And then you lay the color change on top with it, which was instantaneous color change because these little wheels moved very fast. So we, we could change color in a tenth of a second. Hmm. So you combine the instantaneous color change, the dichroic colors, the deep, beautiful colors, the arc lamp, the pan and tilt, the gobos, and the dimming, and the, the, the result was just absolutely mind-boggling. And so we got it working in the first gig. I wasn't able to go to the first gig. I had, um, I was on the road, I think, with somebody. I can't remember. Who. I think I was dealing with McCartney or Zeppelin, or I guess not Zeppelin by that point, but Anyway, I wasn't able to go. The first gig was in, a, in Barcelona, Spain. It blows my mind that you invented this thing. And you didn't well, I didn't really invent it. Jim and the well, engineering you know. guys really did the inventing. But As you say. I was certainly the, with it. You know? You're on the team. I'm the team. But I certainly wanted to go. It was obviously, whatever, whatever reason it was, it was a big, a big reason. Oh, I know what it was. It was Rolling Stones. Yeah. It was Rolling Stones for outdoor tour. I was negotiating the contract for that. That's what it was. So anyway, the uh, Jim told me the story that they were in this bull ring in Barcelona, Spain, and the the crowd was on the in the stand, but they were also out in the in the area in front of the stage, you know, the general seating and stuff. And it was dusty because it was it was dirt. Yeah. Right? And so the air had a lot of particles in it. And he said that whenever they would do cues where all the beams of light would move and everything, the crowd would just ooh and ah and respond to the whole thing. Right. And uh, the, the success of it was just instant. It went around the industry like a rocket. Really? It was just, it was just electric. I mean, it was, this was well before the day of Internet and iPhones and all that. I mean, you're still talking about phone calls and stuff like that, fax machines. But but I tell you, the word of mouth on that was so fast that everybody knew about it. And yeah, I want to I want to talk to you a lot about that and what that does to your competitors and yeah. and how that kind of creates some mo you know yeah. movement. Um, but you were uh, I mean, there's a lot of questions I have about that kind of. But that's a really cool story, kind of going back. But I mean, you hit the market with something that was. 20 times or 50 times more expensive, yeah. right? You know, that had never been yeah. done before uh, and that came together incredibly quickly and then created this massive amount of opportunity on the other side of it. That's right. Right? And so that does not necessarily... There's people in the market selling parkans who are no longer going to be selling parkans. Well, they, they sold them for a long time. It took a while, but eventually... Yeah. It, but it takes a long time. I mean, 
Yeah. You know, Gateway Computers is still selling computers, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it takes a long time for businesses to yeah. fully shut down. Um, we'll be back. We're going to take a break, and uh, we'll be back uh, with good. Rusty Brochet. Thanks. the mix with Matt and Dan. So we are talking, we just got through um, how Very Light was invented uh, by four engineers with an aggressive timeline, some direction from the business guy, yeah. and, uh, and really kind of how you take something from a prototype, go secure a little bit of funding. Uh, went over to England to get funding from Genesis and right. uh, Tony Smith. Um, do you think you would have been able to get funding from a bank? Absolutely not. No, no way. No way. And uh, why not? Well, we didn't have any. We would have had to have had collateral and outside. You know, they wouldn't have loaned us any money on the idea. We yeah. would have had to have pledged something that was. So if Tony Smith isn't very good with his money, if he's <laughs> a, you know, a party or a raging alcoholic or something, and he doesn't keep all of his success, very light doesn't get invented. That's right. Yeah, so... Uh, they, you, Genesis was always really big on investing in their production, though, and their shows, and they really believed in giving the audience a great show, and this, and they always liked technical innovations. Right. And uh, this was right up their alley, so they were, they were really on board with it. And that, and that actually ended up being, a what, a 25-year partnership? Oh, yeah, like that? Like absolutely. Very long. I mean, they were involved in the company the entire time. And, yeah, and almost 30 years. Yeah, and yeah. Um, a lot so of contribution was, there. It was a wonderful, and uh, Tony was a brilliant businessman and manager, and he was a huge help along the way as far as helping run the company. But, you know, when we first built VL0, the original Breadbox prototype, that would change to the colors and, you know, put colors on the wall, the soft edge beam and so forth. Um, our original thinking was that because we had gotten out of the lighting business, we figured we would just license this technology to an existing lighting manufacturer. Yeah. So I called up Wally Russell, who happened to be the president of Strand Lighting, which was the biggest... So this is after the Spain show. No, this was uh, about the probably in the in the winter of 1980 after after we'd been to see Genesis, but 
It may have even been before. But um, I was thinking, you know, I wasn't sure if Genesis was going to fund it or not. Right. And I was thinking that we might want to license it. And and so we went to Strand to see if they would be interested in it. And they turned it down flat. Really? Yeah, they just they didn't see the market for it because it was just too expensive. And it so they just, weren't in awe of seeing no, the color changes? They didn't no, care? They. It, what if it had been shades of white? What if you'd been able to dim it, you know, to different shades of... Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it was just so far removed from what they were doing... Interesting. ...that they just couldn't see it. So sometimes the experts are wrong. Yeah. Right. If you'd been listening to the experts, <laughs> and if you'd yeah. been listening to banks, then you would have just said, oh, no, yeah. this is a... Don't, don't do, do it. it. Yeah. So it was actually a blessing in disguise because it would have been a huge mistake to have licensed it because it, the technology needed to be developed, and it was a long, long way from being truly a product that was that you could sell. It, what do you think made it a product? Like, I mean, like when you say it needed to be developed, what does that mean? Well, in order to sell something, yeah, as opposed to rent it, you know, the great advantage of the rental model is you're putting people out there with your equipment and you can keep everything running. You're on site and you, you make it happen and you build it yourself and you know how it works and so forth. When you sell a product to somebody, you got to put it in a box and wrap it up in a little plastic bag in there and send it to them and they open it up and they take it out of the plastic bag and they plug it in the wall and it's got to work. Right. And then they take it to the road and they do shows. It's got to work, you know, and it takes a lot to make a product do that. Right. And Very Light was just an idea that we were going to throw together. We, we threw together 50 of them, but, you know, it was, there was a lot of issues. There, there was constant technical problems that we were learning as we went along that, that we were able to make happen because we were there with it and we were able to work on it and kept rebuilding it and reworking it, but it was just not a saleable product. Interesting. So it, it took a long time to get, probably took 10 years of work to really? get it to the point of being a saleable product. Right. Anyway, we, we, I chose, uh, I decided that I was going to rent the product. And uh, I figured that I would, uh, I would just come up with a, with a, a business structure, so I decided I would rent it. The units cost us $2,500 a piece to make. Okay. And the console cost about 35000 Yeah. At the time. Like labor, parts, materials, yeah. the whole Yeah, the whole no thing. overhead, just direct parts and labor. Yeah. And um, I decided I would rent the lights for $250 a week per light. Okay. And I would rent them in a 15-light minimum system, and I would include the console at no cost, rental cost. So well, basically... What was the driver behind this? Just... I just... Uh, I don't... knew what the market I, would bear? I just felt like I could get that for it. Yeah. And that was... For 15 lights, that was $3,750 a week. Yeah. And I could make money doing that. And then I charged for the technicians, the people that go with it on top. Mm-hmm. Direct, and then the, the the client would pay all the other expenses, trucking and hotels and all that stuff. Yeah, because you're basically throwing it. They're doing that anyway. Yeah, so. and so by renting it this way, we didn't have to be in the lighting business per se. We could just show up with our very light equipment, and we could add it to the existing lighting system. Okay. 
And for co big customers like Genesis or so forth, I subbed out. I, I still did the lighting contract, but I didn't. I subbed out the lighting part of the of the contract to another vendor, and so I became a general contractor. And I would, I would deliver the total lighting service, but I was primarily making the money off the very light room. So they still needed park hands. They still need well they, spot, yeah. spotlights. Like yeah. what? Like what do you mean? Like you were the general lighting contractor. Like what else would they need other than your fifty very lights? Well, you have to have trusses. You have to have structure to hang all the lights on. Okay. You have to have all the chain motors and rigging. Yeah. You have to have some other lighting fixtures. Yeah. Particularly on that very first tour, we had 50 very light fixtures, but we called them the first generation was VL1. We had 50 VL1s, but we also needed park hands and other lights also. Right. And so there was just, you know, a lighting rig has a lots of bits and pieces, intercom system, onstage follow spots. Yeah, you know, and so stuff. was there still a lighting designer? Yes. Yeah, and so they, you know, they they took your lights and they were like, put one well, here. Well, in the case of Genesis, it was Alan Owen who who was our employee. Yeah. Who had been Genesis lighting designer and primary contact for years when we were in the lighting business, so it worked out. And basically, I took all the senior people from our lighting division that yeah. we shut down and basically transferred them to Verilight, and they became the very light board operators because one of the big challenges once we had this system where you had this console where you could control 50 moving lights was hacked what do you how do you program that what what do you do to make what do you do with them right what, why, why do you make it work with the show and what kind of looks do you get and what how where should the lights be placed and how should they be programmed and how do you program them fast and so just kind of align this back to the story uh, where we are in the stories, you've created 50, you're in Barcelona, you're not there because you're dealing with Rolling Stones, doing some business stuff. Uh, you've got this lightning bolt that happens, yeah. right? Hits the industry hard, right? Yeah. Like just freaks everybody out. People are calling their moms yeah. and their dads and their relatives and like, this is different. This is completely new. Yeah. And then you don't even have a lighting department anymore. No. Because you shut it down. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's when I was thinking maybe that wasn't one of my best decisions, but it turned out to be the great decision because um, it freed me up to put every resource that I had into Verilight. And I, if you recall, I was faced with having to reinvest a huge amount of money in the lighting department to get it up to speed and up to date. And by not having to do that, I was able to put everything I had into building more and more very light. So you didn't equipment. have to replace park ends. You didn't have to go no. do wire maintenance no. or labor or storage or whatever. No. It was just this weird opportunity where yeah. you were wildly efficient yeah. at just throwing all your marbles in, in into one, one bag. one thing. And yeah. so it, it enabled us to be successful and because it, it required a lot of capital to build all these lights for real. Yeah, rental. you think you're making a ton of money, right? But th that's not true because... All that money that you're making you're is putting now. It back in. We're, well, we were we were making a lot of money and we were spending a lot of money. So, right. You know, we, we it's the whole thing. We we might have been very very profitable, but we didn't have any money because we were always using the money to build more and more equipment. I know what, the, I know what that feels like. Yeah. So it uh, it was an interesting thing, and in, in, uh choosing the rental model to develop very light technology was the correct decision because it enabled us to constantly rework and rebuild and improve the equipment over time and um yeah and later, later in the story there's a lot of juxtaposition 
from the rental market versus selling. Yeah. And then really kind of seeing where the profits kind of yeah. yielded out. And, and clearly the, the rental model was a superior choice. It was in the, you know, because it, it's, it's all a matter of time, right? But in, in, in the time period that we were in, which is now September of 1981, and we have this first system, um, you know, it, it was definitely the rental was the way to go for sure. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So you hit the uh, you hit the market. We're going to talk a lot. We're a little bit over our normal hour, so we're probably going to kill this uh, kill yep. this session and then come back. But there's a lot to talk about. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things we're going to focus on next time is really how do you patent an idea like this, right? Right. And like, do you patent an idea like this? And right. at what point do you invest those dollars from building six more lights to get it more revenue to throwing it to a lawyer to uh, write you a scope? Right. A um, lot to talk about, a lot of exciting things ahead. Uh, come back and uh, see what we've got to say. Thanks so much for joining the mix with Matt and Dan. <laughs>